0: We're beginning our journey through the book of Exodus, and this week our reading in chapters 1 through 15 take us through a number of very important events in the history of our faith. The book begins with a little recap um, so that we know where we are. It talks about the 70 in Joseph's family who come to Egypt. So we remember that in Genesis, Genesis literally means the beginning, and so the beginning is is now concluded. We've had the story of how everything was created, how sin and brokenness came into the world, how God begins to reach out to people, how we had multiple peoples, and then how God called out of those peoples the patriarchs of what becomes our faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. At the end of Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have all passed away. Jacob's son, Joseph, has saved this family, clan, tribe, from death during a famine, because he's in favor in Egypt. They've settled in the land of Goshen, starting with 70 people, and now they have grown to be a great people. Let's take a look at all of these events that unfold here, and a little bit of the theological significance and the lessons that we could learn from them. So the people who are Joseph's family, the Hebrew people, or the the soon-to-be Israelites, have settled in the land of Goshen, Um, But the Pharaoh who favored Joseph has died. Joseph has also passed away. So there's a new Pharaoh or a new king. He doesn't know Joseph. He doesn't know the history. And he begins to fear the Hebrew people. This is a very common theme in human history is that we fear those who are different. The thing is, if this Pharaoh had gotten to know them, this story could have been so very different Because Egypt was not their promised land. Canaan is the promised land. If he had gotten to know them, gotten to know their story, read up on the history of Joseph, discovered what their hopes and their dreams were, their hopes and dreams were not to take over Egypt or to even stay there. Their hopes and dreams were to go to their promised land. But that's what we do, we become frightened by those who are different, and all too often we want to hold them down, oppress them, keep them at arm's length, and that's what happens. They go from not just being different and scary and we have to watch them, we have to keep that under control for everyone's safety, to them being oppressed, to them being literally enslaved. One of the events that we see is Pharaoh instructing the midwives to kill all of the male children. Now, we read that, and if you have grown up in church like I have, it sometimes becomes very easy to read through that really quickly. But my friends, understand that this is an attempt at genocide. If there are no male children, then the females will be forced to intermarry with Egyptians, and the Hebrew people will literally cease to exist. So it's not only an attempt to control The the men who would be the fighting force that rebelled, it's an attempt to completely stamp out this group of people by absorbing them into the Egyptian people. The midwives, however, are not going to do this. They're going to find a a way around it as best they can. That's how we come to have little Moses born, Um, his fierce mother, and his very fierce sister. His sister never gets named here. So I can't know it for sure, but I believe this sister is probably Moses' brother Aaron's sister, Miriam, who becomes significant after the Exodus event occurs. But Miriam, I believe, watches him in the water. He ends up being adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. The mother gets paid to nurse and raise her own child. And then Moses grows up with all these royal connections and royal education, although he's never fully included. Moses, we see, has um, a temper problem. He has an anger issue, and that anger is going to haunt him throughout his journey and his life. It leads him to murder an Egyptian, But all throughout his ministry and his leadership, he's going to have moments of anger. Um, He's going to strike a rock instead of speaking to it. Um, Those kinds of things. It it would have been better if he could have gotten his temper under control. I think he learns to temper it a little bit, especially by his father-in-law, Jethro. In your translation, you may also see his father-in-law referred to as Ruel. R e u e l, it's just another name for Jethro, but that's his father-in-law. We see Moses take a wife in Zipporah, and in chapter two, verses twenty-four, we see that God hears the cries of His people and hears the cries of His of the oppressed. There is a spiritual principle that God is always on the side of the oppressed. What God wants for the people that God has created is freedom, life more abundant and free, a life of obedience, of love, of peace and unity with God and with one another. And when we distort that loving relationship, when we use power to control and dominate and we create an oppressed group of people, God is always going to get on the side of those who are being oppressed. Because God is a God of justice and mercy, and He expects us to show mercy and to strive for justice. And when we're being unjust, we place ourselves in opposition to the very nature of who God is and how God will be working. So if you look at it all throughout Scripture, God is going to be on the side of the oppressor. So we want to make sure we're never on the side of the oppressor, that we are working for justice, peace, and mercy. Moses has a very pivotal event in his own personal life with the burning bush. We see that already there is this establishment that sin present in our lives separates us from God. There's a distance. There's a difference between a holy, righteous, and pure God and a people who have embraced sin, who have sin in their lives. And we're eventually going to need Jesus to make that gap be bridged. One of the ways the land gets described is as a land of milk and honey. A few years ago when I went to Israel, our guide was explaining to us what it means for a land to be a land flowing with milk and honey. A land that has milk, that's considered a milk land, is good for flocks, for herds. To raise offspring was the mother's milk, the baby's. And so a land flowing with milk is one that is good for having your livestock on, for grazing and raising herds. A land that is flowing with honey is good for raising crops. So a land that is flowing with milk and honey becomes a very important, very lucrative land. The way we simply say that phrase is usually a land flowing with milk and honey. However, in Israel, when they will say it, they say a land flowing with milk and honey. So the emphasis is on the and because it's common, more common for a land to have one or the other. At the burning bush, Moses gets his call to liberate the Israelites. And Moses wants to know under whose authority is he going to be working, like whose name Do I tell them I'm being sent in? And he gets this phrase, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. That becomes the holy name of God. The Jewish people call it the Tetragrammaton, the four letters, and they are Y-H-W-H in Hebrew. No vowels. Hebrew doesn't have any vowels. It reads from right to left. It's all capital letters. You have to infer the vowels. It's a very difficult um, language to learn and one I am so thankful that I only had to have two classes of in seminary and did not have to become fluent. It's also where we get the word Jehovah because the first English translations, the first translations that come to us came through Germany And Germans pronounce a Y as a J and a W as a V. So Y-H-W-H becomes J-H-V-H. And when you put vowels in there, Yahweh becomes Jehovah. Moses also lacks confidence. Um, God has given him authority, given him a name that he can use. But now God is going to give him some miracles that he can perform his shepherd's rod is going to become a snake. Um, he's going to be able to make his hand leprous and then cure it and then turn water into blood. All of these, the magicians of Egypt are going to be able to duplicate in some way. Moses also complains about his lack of ability to speak. He just isn't a confident public speaker and And so finally, after he begs God to send someone else, God says, get your brother Aaron to help you. This ends up being a good thing, I believe, because Moses has been raised in the Egyptian household. He's not fully accepted by the Egyptian people, but he's also not fully accepted by the Hebrew people any longer because he did have that connection to the Egyptians. His brother Aaron, however, has been raised in the Hebrew culture and can be a bridge there. But he's chosen to be that bridge and that mouthpiece because Moses lacks the confidence to engage on this on his own. I see some parallels here between Moses and Jesus. Jesus had authority and he wasn't believed. Moses has the authority of God and Pharaoh's not going to believe him. Jesus had miracles to prove that he had power. Moses has miracles. Neither of them are going to find that that is enough for people to follow. In chapter 5, verse 3, we have the first incidents where the world is going to try to make us too busy to worship God. When Moses goes to Pharaoh, confronts him and says, God wants me to tell you to let the people go. Pharaoh goes, no, I'm not going to do that. And he then says, make them keep making the same number of bricks, but don't give them any of the materials to do it with. Let them gather their own materials. So he makes the work harder so they wouldn't have time. They can't meet their quota. I still believe the world tries to make us too busy to find time to have daily quiet time, to get in connection with God, to to attend worship on Sundays. We get offered this wide variety of other things that we could do with our time, and we must not let the world make us too busy for this vital connection. Life comes through our connection with God. Satisfaction purpose, fulfillment, contentment in life come from our connection to God, not from running after all these things that the world would present us with as options for that. So I talked for a really long time about the first 15 chapters of Exodus. So long, in fact, that I have decided to divide that into two portions. So look for part two of this reading. It will cover the plagues, the Passover, and the actual Exodus event, and the crossing of the Red Sea, and then contain the summary of the theological events or the theological ideas that I believe are being introduced here. I apologize for being long-winded, but look for part two.